Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. And welcome to the show, folks. I'm Rod Rodriguez, as always, host of the Back Brief, ConnectingVets.com, at Rod Pod Rod. I'm going to throw all my Twitter. I'm going to throw all the handles on now because if I wait to the end, I know some of you guys aren't waiting to the end. I, I know this. But you should, especially for this episode, because we've got a banger, folks. we got a banger. I've got Jack Murphy here, the wonderful, the in- ineffable. Is that a word? Ineffable? Yeah. Hey. This, what, I don't know why the word ineffable came to mind. I'm not even <laughs> sure what the fuck that means. I, I could be insulting you. I, I don't even know what ineffable means. I'm, it's okay. I'm used to it, Rod. <laughs> Thick skin. Thick skin. Um, this weekend, this is why you folks need to be on the Twitters. You need to be on the <laughs> tweetings, okay? You need to be on the Twitters, inside the Google machine, because I'm scrolling through my Twitter over the weekend, and then I see something from Jack Murphy pop up. And the thing that catches my, first of all, is the headline. Jack, you got to walk us through this. Why should people, what did people miss this weekend if they weren't on the tweeting? Yeah, man. Uh, So what went out on Saturday was an article that I worked on for a long time, uh, putting a lot of puzzle pieces together. Uh, The title of it is the CIA sent a team of four operators on a spy mission targeting China. None came back. That is published uh, by Yahoo News this weekend. And the story is about a CIA covert operation in 2008 that went awry and four CIA employees were killed. Holy shit. So that, that, you know, that's the thing that got to me about your, your, your tweet was like, CIA, you know, we got a maritime operation. Uh, the Chinese are involved. We got American guys, uh, you know, American uh, oper- operatives. Is that the right? What would you, well, we how would you? They're proprietary contract employees um, at the end of the day. Um, they were working for a CIA uh, commercial cover company. So uh, it, for, you know, to, to talk about this, I decided to rock out my uh, CIA mug that I got at their wonderful gift shop. Shout out to CIA.gov. <laughs> it's, inter- it's interesting you mentioned that. Br- remind me about the gift shop at the end of this story, because there's, a, there's a, an anecdote there that is not in the article that I can tell. Uh, yeah, 100% same here. Um, I, I went down there for actual business. Like I actually presented uh, some government stuff down to, to those folks. And uh, I was there with other army guys. Uh, and it was kind of funny to us because um, I don't know how they hire at the CIA, but you have to be like, I don't know, between a seven and a 10 in looks to work for the CIA. I was, 
I was flabbergasted. I was sitting there like, who are these people? They, they all stepped out of like GQ and like <laughs> these, these magazines. They're like, all the women were beautiful. All the guys were like chiseled jawed and like had form fitting suits. And I'm like, me and my four dumpy army guys are like, where are your like puffy uniforms? <laughs> Not even that, man. We had our off the rack JC Penny jackets, man. <laughs> it, I felt like with the gold buttons. Yeah, hundred percent. We we I, I was like, dude, we're like the chess club, and the jocks just showed up, and everyone was like, <laughs> stop eating, just dump your dump your lunch, fuck it, let's get out of here. <laughs> but anyway, so the CIA. Um, we got these, so let's talk about this cutouts thing. Let's talk out, let's talk a little bit about the fact that we have a cover company. We hear that we hear about cover, uh, companies in movies, um, born identity style. What, what is this in reality? What are these things? Uh, so there's a, yeah, a long history of this. Um, you can look back to, um, air America during the Vietnam conflict that we had these commercial, companies that the CIA had built these commercial companies to fly, um, you know, covert deniable operations. So Air America was the CIA's secret airliner that could ferry people and it could ferry supplies around Southeast Asia um, without drawing undue attention to themselves. And there were a whole, uh, it was a whole network of companies really. And we continue to do this to this day. So do other countries. The CIA builds these companies out of whole cloth, as one retired uh, officer told me, and they serve as the, the front that the CIA can hide behind um, in order for them to launch operations. Uh, and this is all perfectly legal and lawful, and there's nothing um, nefarious about it. This is just the way that intelligence services have to go about their business, because obviously you're trying to keep some secrets <laughs> in that line of work. So... When you say they're built out of whole, they're, they're built from whole cloth and they're actual, are these business, do these businesses actually function or are they just like on paper? Some do and some don't. Um, I, so a lot of people are familiar with the concept of the knock, the non-official cover. Mm -hmm. um, some of them may be running profitable businesses. I, I couldn't say for a matter of fact. Um, however, the company that I ended up looking at is uh, interesting. And what, what are the tells for me that kind of gave it away when I started looking at it was that they claim to sell boats, but there's no boats in their marina, like ever. So what they say they do uh. on paper, they're not actually doing as near as I can tell. And so that, but they own this big piece of property down in, down in Panama City, Florida. Um, you know, I had, I had a friend go and drive by the, the company and take a look at them. I mean, it's like barbed wire fence with the slats through the fence. So you can't see inside. Yeah. And there, there's like security cameras, but the parking lots are empty. There's nothing going on there. And so I, I knew what I was looking for from the get-go, but these, these indicators start to come up. And if you want, I can go back in time and tell you how this kind of story initially fell into my lap, I guess you could say. A hundred percent. I, I, I want to add, you know, I live here in Virginia, mm -hmm. um, just outside of DC in the beautiful town of Manassas. Um, what's funny is being in the Intel community, being in the, in the know as, as you know, so many people in this area are, um, I'll be driving places with my kids and I'll point to a building and like, you see that? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, see all those wires and stuff sticking out at the top? They're like, yeah. I'm like, 
that's a bank building? Or it'll say like, like uh, it'll be like an ice cream parlor or some, some really weird business. And I'm like, why do they have like a fucking UHF antenna sticking up at the top? And I'm like, these are, I mean, they're, they're all over the place here in Virginia. You can, yeah, yeah. There are, if there are certain places, if you go into the, uh, the, they'll have like this little security gate. If you go in the front, the guy will answer who's checking your ID. And it's like, you'll see the little patch and it's a, a CIA security guard. You're like, oh shit, bro! I'm just trying to do a U-turn, my man. I'm not trying to like break into the mainframe. Um, how did this story land in your lap, Mr. Murphy? Yeah, well, to say it landed in my lap uh, is maybe exaggerating because of how long it took me to kind of put some of the puzzle pieces together. But uh, I, it initially came up on my radar because a friend of mine, and I, I can—he doesn't mind if I if I use his name in vain. A really good guy named Rick Iannucci. He's a retired Green Beret and he runs a charity called Horses for Heroes. Uh, He takes, yeah, yeah, he takes veterans out horseback riding uh, in New Mexico. And I mean, Rick is just like, he's such a great guy. He's doing like God's work. And I I would love to interview him. I don't think he'd even do it. Like he doesn't want like publicity or he doesn't want to be in the spotlight. He just, you know, he's just out there trying to help people. He's a really strong Christian guy. Um, so he had somebody come through his organization, somebody he met in, in passing, who was talking about their, uh, their son who died on a, some sort of like weird classified Navy mission in 2008 out in the Pacific. And Rick calls me up and he's like, Jack, man, if anybody knows about this, it's got to be my man, Jack. And, I'm, and Rick, so he tells me this and I'm like, Rick, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, I, I've never heard of this. And so I get a lot of people asking me these types of questions and nine times out of 10, it turns out to be bullshit. Well, this was that one time that this turned out to be something pretty big. Um, And I started looking. All I had to go on was the name of that one gentleman, this one young man who was lost at sea ostensibly on uh, on a classified mission. I found a little charity group that his family started in his name to kind of keep his memory alive uh, and, and do some good things for other people. Uh, you know, that this young sailor's name was Michael Perrick. He was a graduate of the Merchant Marine Academy. And through his website uh, for this foundation, I was able to see there were three other people who died uh, out on this operation. So now I have a place to start looking. And all I can, uh, I don't want to say too much here just because I could be, you know, maybe revealing too much to, uh, to, to the public, but let's just say I started requesting records from the government. I started making FOIA requests and things like this. And I was digging as much as I could, um, doing a lot of like internet sleuthing, trying to find out who these three other people were. And I was trying, the way I went about this was just completely insane. Uh, like my eyes were melting out of my head because I was, I had the date. It was September in 2008 that, that this operation went awry. So I'm looking for people, other people in this, in an area who had died around the same time to see if I can identify who it is. Um, through the Navy records and, and other records I was able to request, I found some slip-ups, some slip-ups where a CIA front company, what I, what I later came to find out was a CIA front company was mentioned by name. And I said, well, that's interesting. Like, what is this company? So I started looking at that, found it, it was in Panama City, Florida. So now 
I know this sailor, this guy, Michael, was working for this company in Panama City, and he died on this date in September. So now I'm looking other people in Panama City, Florida, who died on that date. I was able to identify two others who were lost at sea right around that same time time period. Uh, They were just really strong matches, really strong indicators. I could not find number four for the longest time. What I did was uh, I went looking for the death certificates. It's really, it's generally, it's pretty hard from what I'm told by police officers in Florida. It's really hard to have a person, uh, a death certificate issued when there's no remains, when the person has just essentially disappeared. Um, I, I kept looking, what I was able to find out was that the lawyer working for the Panama City company consolidated three of the four death certificates. So I was able to get all four, but three of them were consolidated. So that's how I got the fourth name because it was on there with the two others. So the other three sailors, Stephen Stanick was a retired EOD diver, Navy diver, Jamie McCormick and Daniel Meeks. The the latter two uh, were support guys. Um, I think one of them was a ship's mechanic. Another one belonged to like a big maritime union. I'm not sure exactly what his role was on the ship. Um, So now I have quite a bit of information to go off of, um, but I'm working to try to find people in the CIA uh, who know about, know specifics of this operation. Who knows what really happened here? Because it's great that I have all these indicators. I have this really creepy feeling about what I'm looking at, but I need sources who can actually say, yes, that's what you think it is, Jack. Um, And it took, I mean, all this took like years to do, quite frankly. Uh, Eventually I had a a meeting with a friend who's a retired CIA officer. We met and had a couple beers. It was one of those like five, six hour conversations. And, you know, by the time we're at like hour six or seven, he's like, yeah, Jack, you remember that thing you asked me about a long time ago about uh, South China Sea and and operation? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And he was like, yeah, you were right. That was us. So finally, I'm having somebody actually confirm that, yes, this was an agency operation. Um, But now I I don't feel comfortable running this on its own. I I need a secondary confirmation. Um, and eventually I was able, it, it, again, long period of time, I was able to find somebody who knew basically everything about how it had gone down. And at that point I had enough to publish. So I went ahead and started, you know, pitching the article. Um, to actually talk now about what did happen, what, what this really is, what, what really happened here. Um, there, so this front company we've been talking about down in Panama City, I'm not mentioning its name, um, to expose them because they, they've done nothing illegal or immoral or wrong. They were doing their job. Um, the company has been around for a long, a long time, actually. Um, Michael Perrick and Steven Stanick, uh, Daniel Meeks and Jamie McCormick were on a covert operation in the South China Sea. They got on a boat uh, in Malaysia. They were working, uh, this was a maritime branch operation, I should mention. There are three paramilitary branches, air branch, ground branch, and maritime branch. Uh, Maritime branch was running this operation. They were hiding, you know, so to speak, behind this front company. They got on a a boat owned by maritime branch, about a 40-foot boat, uh, 
and they were taking it from Malaysia up the coast of the Philippines to Japan. Their cover, their cover story was that they were, uh, someone had purchased this boat in Japan and they were transporting it from point A to point B. Now, in reality, their mission was to stop uh, somewhere um, on an island north of Luzon and Stanek and Perrick would get off the boat wearing commercial scuba gear that was completely deniable if they lost it or if they were captured. You know, there's no American government, no CIA fingerprints on this at all. Uh, and they were to swim uh, a sort of pod that would look like a rock out to one of these islands that they thought the Chinese were messing around on and plant it just below the surface. And this, this pod was loaded up with classified technologies that would monitor Chinese naval activity in the area. Once they placed the pod, they would swim back to the boat. They would go uh, up to Japan. They'd chill out in Japan for uh, a couple of weeks and then turn around, make a return trip, recover the device, and head back down to Malaysia. Now, what happened in September of 2008, what actually happened was that as they were approaching their area to launch this operation, a hurricane blew in across the Pacific. Uh, it was actually downgraded to a tropical storm, Tropical Storm Higos. Uh, it was projected to veer north. So Stephen Stanek, he had to make a decision about whether or not they were going to go forward with this covert operation. He decided that they were going to go forward with it because the storm was projected to veer north and miss where they were going to be running this mission. They went forward with it, but the storm did not veer, it did not change course, and it barreled right down on top of these four guys in a 40-foot boat uh, north of Luzon. At that point, it really didn't matter which direction they tried to escape from. They were going to get broadsided by the storm regardless. The CIA had a beacon on the boat. They tracked it right into the middle of the storm where it disappeared. And that was the last that anyone ever heard of these guys. It was Michael Perrick's 25th birthday. Oh, shit. So how long ago did this all happen? It was 2008 was the mission. So 2008 where, you know, 12 years later, we're, we're finally getting some details. Um, how long, I mean, let's assume there wasn't a Jack Murphy to go in and dig the stuff up. You know, how long would this have gone unheard of? I really don't know. It, that depends on political considerations um, way above my head. I think that they probably uh, had a interest in keeping it secret because of the politics of the region. Right. And we're, we're really at the beginning of a sort of new cold war with China. Um, and because this operation was targeting China, I suspect that it would remain completely secret for a very long period of time. And what about the families of the deceased? Um, I know you reached out, one of them reached out to you. Uh, what about, what, what, no, no, uh, none, of, none of them reached out. Oh, none of them reached out. I, th I thought somebody had said that their son was the one that had. Right, but he talked to my friend Rick. Talked to your friend, Rick, that's right. And Rick, and Rick, and Rick asked right. me about it. Okay, so. I, I, I contacted, I, I tried to reach out to all the families. That was my question. Uh, yeah, they, they did not want to talk to me um, at all. Now, when, when something like that occurs, uh, your kid is part of a CIA operation, you probably don't even know your kid is working in that world. Uh, do they tell you? Does somebody come and tell you, like, listen, we're CIA, your son worked for us, he passed away. Yes. Um, so 
a, a month later, they, they had the, the um, Japanese actually doing some sweeps, trying to see if they could find any survivors or any remnants of, of the, the ship that they were on. They didn't find even a floating life jacket. These guys disappeared with that. They disappeared in the center of the storm and we haven't ever, uh, nothing was recovered at all. Um, so now a, a month or so goes by, the CIA has to do something uh, with the family members. How are we going to handle this? They flew the families into Washington, D.C. They put them up in a hotel in Tyson's Corner, and they were brought into a private room. And for the first time, CIA employees told the families that their loved ones had died during a covert operation. Uh, it was very difficult. Um, family members are upset. They had a lot of questions for the CIA that they couldn't answer. Like what exactly happened right. in, 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 this, in this hurricane? And, and you know, they don't, they don't know. No one knows exactly what happened. Um, you know, one of the family members didn't want to believe that they were really dead. You know, is it possible that they were uh, kidnapped by the Chinese or something like this? That they weren't. But they had questions that no one could really answer. And uh, it's tough. I mean, I, I can't imagine how tough a pill it is to swallow um, for the family members. They were then brought to CIA headquarters and there was a ceremony at the CIA's memorial wall where they have uh, stars uh, inlaid in, in white marble for every CIA employee who has died in the line of duty going back to the agency's inception. And four stars were added to the wall for these four gentlemen. And uh, the families were able to meet with the director. They were able to meet with uh, Maritime Branch. They were able to meet with other people of the, uh, of the Special Activities Division. And then sent home. And, and that's, kind of, that's kind of the story. Uh, I can only imagine, you know, what, what they've had to deal with. Now, one of the family members sounds like they brought up something that <clears throat> I was wondering myself. Is it possible that they, that, that they were captured? Is it, I mean, no, no, it, it, this was I, I mean, storm. I'll, I'll say this within the Navy diver community, there are rumors um, to this day about, you know, what really happened. Uh, and there's speculation that, you know, the Chinese shot them up or that the Chinese snatched them up or all the, all these sorts of, or, or the pirates attacked them. I mean, there's all kinds of theories out there. Um, but I'm quite confident that I got the, the real story on this and that they did get, uh, you know, trapped inside a hurricane, which sank that vessel with all hands on deck being lost. Is this something that the Chinese would have known, um, like, hey, these guys look like they were trying to do something. They got destroyed out at sea. Um, prior to this publication of the story, is it possible the Chinese didn't know anything that was going on in and around that island? Well, I hesitate to say what the Chinese do or do not know um, because there's all kinds of spy games going on at, at higher levels. Like, do, can I say for a fact that there isn't, you know, someone in the, in the agency right now leaking secrets to the Chinese? as has come out in the, in several big stories in the last year. And maybe they know all about our operations in that area. I mean, I don't know. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, there, there's, they, they maintained their secrecy. Everyone maintained their secrecy that uh, from the agency um, to the family members who probably had to sign NDAs um, that, that a, a little boat was lost in, during a hurricane off the coast of the Philippines 
I, I don't necessarily, I would not assume that the CIA, or I'm sorry, I would not assume that the Chinese government knows anything about what they were doing there or that it even happened. Because, and this is interesting too, as I was writing the story, I have pretty good contacts in the Philippines and I have pretty good contacts in the U.S. Special Forces community. Man, I reached out to everybody, people who are like the SOTIF commanders and stuff like that in the Philippines at that time and said, hey, were you ever out looking for four American citizens lost at sea in this time period? And there were every single one of them like looked back at me like, what are you talking about? Like our, our own military completely oblivious that this operation took place. Is that good? I mean, is that, I mean, for, in terms of like maintaining secrecy, 100%, like these guys are gone, that we've lost contact. This is supposed to be a secret operation. Let's just quietly flip the switch down and, and, and right, the families. Right. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, these were American citizens. They were doing something in, in the line of their country. Um, I, I don't know. I kind of feel a little bit both ways on that. Like, should we have done a better job of looking for them? Maybe they could have survived. Maybe they're, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that's maybe impossible to say. I, I don't think there's anything that we could have done for them, unfortunately. Um, you can keep looking and looking. Um, I, I don't know what the odds are that you would ever, you know, find anything though. Take me back to this island that we're talking about. You know, we've got this secret mission to in place a, a, a rock with like super cool technology in there to observe, um, I'm sure, ships and whatever. Um, what's the significance of this island? Why put this stuff? What, what was the point of this mission? Um, you know, and, that, that, and yeah. how, is it, how has it evolved today? That, that's a really good question. And to be completely honest with you, I, I haven't been able to identify the exact island that the, the target was um, that they were placing this, this sensor on. However, that area is, you know, it's a strategic uh, site, um, not quite a choke point. I guess you could say it's a, it's a maritime choke point. It, long story short, that area is the ingress and egress in and out of the South China Sea. And that is strategic waters, particularly for the Chinese government. I mean, you've seen them building all of these artificial islands on like reefs and atolls in the South China Sea. Like they see this as their backyard and they're expanding outwards in a attempt to maintain strategic depth. Uh, they do not want the US Navy right there up on their shores. They want us pushed back pushed all the way out of the South China Sea, which is also about maintaining their economic access. Um, I mean, this is like old school stuff. There, there are theories about naval power and whoever controls the high seas controls you know, the global economy, which has been true in so many ways. You can also look at the Chinese developing this new Silk Road that going across Eurasia. That's another way to completely get around American naval power. So that area that these guys were lost in, I'll just say it's strategically significant although I don't know the exact specifications of the mission that they were trying to complete. Have you reached out to the Chinese and see if they wanted to talk about their uh, position on that? No, 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 I, no, I haven't. <laughs> I, I think that's the next step. I'm sure they, they'd love to invite you to the embassy here in DC. Come in. Oh, I'm sure they would. You, I'm have sure a they cup would. Of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I once visited the, uh, the embassy of Oman, um, and that was that, that was it was it's Oman, but it was kind of a scary situation because uh, once the, the gates close behind you, 
you're in Oman. Um, I, I, now, I, I asked the question of whether or not you reached out to the Chinese government. It's, but at the same time, I, I'm very curious about what, what they have to say about stuff like that. Um, this is the other side of the story. And um, well, we do have another, uh, another curious incident in uh, 2016. Uh, there was a underwater drone that the Chinese Navy uh, plucked up out of the ocean uh, about 50 miles off the coast of the Philippines that they said was monitoring th their ship. They grabbed it up out of the water. The U.S. government protested and said, hey, that's, uh, that's ours. That's an that's a oceanographic you know, uh, survey device. Stop screwing with our stuff. You can't take our drone. Four days later, the Chinese met us in international waters and were like, here's your drone, bro. And everyone moves on. So I, I think it's just interesting, and this is somewhat speculative as well, that, you know, the, the uh, use of aerial drones, predator drones, over places around the world, around the Middle East, is something that sort of short circuits American foreign policy because a drone doesn't have the same value as a manned aircraft. So if a drone goes down or something happens, everyone's just like, ah, whatever. And the same happened here in 2016. I mean, they pulled the drone out of the water and the Chinese are like, eh, here's your drone back. Get the hell out of here. You know, like what? <laughs> you know, it, it very, and, and from our perspective, also very different than a covert operation where four men are lost. Uh, it's a horrible loss. And, you know, and at the same time that you're trying to deal with that loss, you're also trying to maintain the secrecy of the operation. So, I mean, that it's just so much messier than using robotics to try to accomplish um, ostensibly the same mission. Do you think that mission was accomplished later? I mean, I'm, I know we're, we're, we're traveling into the world, we're now going into the waters of speculation, but that was 12 years ago. I mean, I, I mean, we would like to think that we have, um, you know, highly competent uh, you know, intelligence services that can do anything, anytime, anywhere. And I'd like to think that they have put these pods on every island in the South China Sea. Um, but the reality is that these missions are difficult to do. Um, sometimes they go wrong, as we've seen. Um, so I, I, really, the, I really don't know. But I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that maritime and undersea espionage continues in the South China Sea. I mean, that, that much I have no doubt about. <laughs> And we've seen other situations where, like in South America, I think uh, Venezuela, you know, they, they uh, Bolivia maybe, I can't remember which South American country, but, you know, they claim to have captured CIA guys or former, uh, you know, uh, SF guys that got out. They're now, you know, working mm -hmm. for some other co country or some other government or maybe some other uh, company. That's what I was looking for. Some other corporation. Um, that's not completely unheard of to say we've captured these guys and to show them on, dis put them on display. I don't know if China would necessarily do that or if they got a little more chill in their game where they're like, well, if we did capture somebody, let's just keep this under wraps, keep this to ourselves, keep, you know, drive on. Um, what does this mean for the future of espionage or, or our work against the Chinese expansion into the, uh, the China Sea? Yeah, well, that's the big question, I think. And, it's not easy to answer that either. You know, it's like uh, if you ever seen the, the film Burn After Reading, where they get to Good the movie. very end of the film and the, the CIA guy is like, after all these crazy events have transpired, and he's like, so what have we learned? Fucking nothing. 
I mean, that that's harsh, but I mean, that may be the case. Maybe, maybe this operation took place and it's another failed covert operation, but it does really not impact the broader swath of American intelligence operations. We, it, it's like, you know, just like the army, like, Hey, we lost that platoon. It's war. And, yeah. but the bat, the, you know, the war goes on. Um, that, that may be the case here. Uh, I, you know, I think we would all like to think and hope that they do a thorough after action review the way you would in the military and, and try to improve things and see what can be done. Um, but I don't know. I, I really don't know what, what it means. I, I think it just, it's a, um, it, it, it definitely, reveals that we are conducting espionage in this area that we're interested in this area and i think that we're going to be continued uh to be interested in the south china sea for the uh you know for a considerable amount of time uh what it's what the real uh specific long-term impacts if any i'm not sure as you know you you mentioned that this this story didn't exactly land in your lap you've been working on this for a couple of years now uh, it seems like the story's come to a bit of a conclusion. Has it come to a conclusion for you? Is there more to this that you're looking for? Where do we go from here? I think I think this is pretty much the conclusion for me, um, unless there's some big revelation that uh, I'm just unaware of. Um, I think that's probably it, um, which is sad. We all, I mean, I understand that, like we all kind of want there to be more. We want there to be some sort of closure. And in this case, there isn't. There isn't really a happy ending. Um, you don't get that kind of catharsis of like knowing exactly what happened because we don't, and I don't think we, I don't think we ever will. That's real life. That's yeah. real life, right there. That yeah, we, it we is the happy and, endings. And this is a just like a little interesting. Like I, I hate to sort of like make this about uh, about anything other than the four guys who mm-hmm. perished. Um, I would say it was interesting when I was trying to pitch the story because I had some editors come back to me and say, where is the narrative content? Like, how do we turn this into a narrative? Uh, and I, I tried to explain to them, I was like, look, you know, like you get, you guys did this with Blackhawk uh, or with uh, Zero Dark Thirty. You took a mission and you tried to turn it into a narrative with a, a character arc in a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's good guys, there's bad guys. Mm. But the reality, it, it just does not work like that. You know, in a, in, a fictional, uh, in a fictional film, like Zero Dark Thirty, there's some big differences between that and reality. And, you know, the, the biggest difference is that fiction makes sense. It makes sense. There's a storyline. Reality, it often does not make sense. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I remember talking about some of the podcast episodes that I've done in the past, a couple of different shows. And, you know, one of the things that I was asked was like, well, can we, uh, how do we, how do we make this happy? <laughs> how do we right. how do we turn this into something more, a little more digestible for people? And I'm like, well, you don't, this is real life. This is what happens to people. Um, it's, it's not always pleasant. It's not always, there's, very rarely do we have the opportunity to put a bow on something and be like, and done. There's always questions left unanswered. And, and in this case, you have four people who have never been recovered. Um, and there's, there, there will always be a question mark on this. You know, even though you can tell me uh, 99.9% chance that they, they were just lost at sea and, and their bodies are unrecoverable, there's always going to be 
a seed of doubt in somebody's mind, especially a family member who's thinking, who wants to hold on to something. Maybe they're somewhere, even if they're being held, maybe they're alive, maybe there's hope, maybe, you know, in five years or maybe soon the Chinese will be like, hey, guess what? Kind of like the drone thing. Like they're just going to meet out in the scene and be like, hey, by the way, we found these guys on a raft here. You know, there's that hope. Um, I think that we all know that that's most likely not going to happen. I mean, we, we would all like to have hope and we'd all love to see these, uh, any Americans uh, repatriated. Right. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid they're just, that, that hope just mm. doesn't exist. And I wouldn't want to no. give anyone false hope. I mean, these, <laughs> Absolutely these, these, these four guys, they, they died serving their country. They, they died honorably. And I think they deserve to be remembered that way. It just sucks that we don't have an end, like a, like a definitive, that's it. Um, we have to kind of create it for ourselves. And I think that's, um, that's a rough, that's a tough pill to swallow. And uh, I wish the best for their families. And I think that we all agree that uh, we're all thankful for their service. I mean, it's, it's interesting. One of the people that you mentioned in your story, uh, maybe one or two of them were merchant Marines, right? Yeah. Uh, Michael Perrick was a graduate of the Merchant Marine Academy. He was a, he was a young guy. He was, I think, 25 when he, when he passed away on this mission. Um, like, dude was in great shape, played football for the Merchant Marine Academy. I mean, he, he, was a, he was a stud, you know, good guy. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure he's a great guy. Is it common to recruit? Uh, you see, when, when I think of like CAA guys, um, I'm always thinking, you know, recruiting from the special operations Field. We're pulling from the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs and whatnot. Um, I would never have guessed like Merchant Marine or anything like that. Um, is that a common thing for the CIA to go pull somebody from a non-military background like that? Uh, I don't know that it's uncommon. Um, you know, the other the the guy who's the leader for this operation, Stephen Stanick, he was a, a career he was a career EOD diver. Um, I FOIA'd his uh, fit reps from the Navy, like stellar reviews across the board. I mean, he, he was a solid guy. Interesting. Got yeah, anything else for us? Anything else to wrap this up, Jack? Well, man, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff. I mean, this this uh, there's so much going on here. Um, we can even get into like through this story. And in my hunting around, I kind of became acquainted with the Navy diver community. Okay. And there's some stuff there that we can get into for a little bit if you're interested. Uh, I think everyone is interested in knowing exactly what you dived into. What? What? Oh, what? Oh, wow. I did. Wow. I went there, man. I did it. I did it. <laughs> you know how long I've been waiting for that dive joke? Uh, but go for it, man. What, what, did, what, what did you discover? Well, uh, I knew, you know, very little about these guys or what they did. There's different types of Navy divers who have different jobs. Um, I'd say overall, all of these guys have some pretty big balls doing what they do. It's a, it's a tough line of work. Um, interestingly, there's also the Navy saturation divers. Um, there's a Navy dive experimentation unit, experimental dive unit down in Panama City that Steve Stanek used to work for at one point. And there and elsewhere in the Navy over the years, they, these guys, it's like the NASA of the underwater subsurface world. Like everyone probably thinks about Navy SEALs. It's really these guys. They're doing like all these science experiments on divers. 
like they'll Whoa. test out like new mixes of oxygen on them while they're like on the exercise bike and things like this and then like change up the o2 output or change this and that just to like see like how can we get a little bit more bottom time for these guys when they're at depth uh i talked to one guy who like they were they were testing out on him different uh, gas mixes to see how deep he could get um and this guy was he told me he was like almost a thousand feet underwater at one point and what happens is that it gets you're so deep and under so much pressure it becomes so much work to move around that you're expending more oxygen just like being down there like there's this all this like math and physiology that goes into it and he's saying like breathing off of uh the mass breathing off of uh off the mixed gas that at that depth it's so compressed that it's like you're breathing in maple syrup and you're having to suck harder and harder on the respirator oh. just to get it out yeah it's like God. so so like wild stuff um and these guys uh amongst other things they they are engaged in underwater espionage and what they will do is lock out of submarines uh, like like the big U.S. Navy submarines uh, at depth, and they'll go and tap undersea fiber optic cables, and and this continue th this this th this oh happens God. this happens all the time. Like we we tap fiber optics, the French do, the Brits do, the Israelis do, um, but we do this at, at depth. Um, and I'm gonna like go back in time a little bit to when this first started, uh, Operation Ivy Bells in the 1970s. And they actually had components of Ivory Bell's, um, the logistics for it around Panama City, Florida. Like I said, it's a, it's a hub for this type of activity. They, uh, I talked to a diver who was involved in Ivy Bell's early, early on. And they went into uh, this bay off the coast of Kamchatka in Russia. And they'd get the periscope up. And they'd be like looking on the shoreline of then the Soviet Union until they hit, they found the sign that said like, don't dig here. There's fiber optic cables. They'd find that sign in Cyrillic. So then they know there's a fiber optic cable coming off into the, into the ocean. So they'd take the, their, uh, their submarine over to where the cable is. The divers would lock out of the sub uh, and they'd swim over there and conduct the operation and put the uh, tape recorder. So these are the analog days. It was not digital. It was analog, like big, big spools of tape. And they put it uh, a tap on the cable. And he was saying, when you were able to do that, you could dial down through the cable and hear every level of Soviet communication going through it. So like you'd hear like, you know, the Soviet officers talking, but like you dial down and you'd hear like a Russian sailor playing Elvis over the radio to his girlfriend ba back in Moscow. Like it was just an insane, the stuff that, 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 that they could hear. It was like, there's, I mean, the crown jewels, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. Right. Um, so it's very possible the, the Chinese know what's, exa what's it, what exactly is on my browser history. It <laughs> could be. That is disturbing. Uh, um, and then, he was also telling me when they went to recover the device, the recorder, they'd get out there and it was cut. The first thing he'd have to do is pull off all the horseshoe, or not horseshoe crabs, but like spider crabs, that they were all over the recorder because they were attracted to the warmth of it. Oh, yeah. So he'd have to pull these crabs off. It'd take like 45 minutes of pulling them off and like zip tying the crabs to something else so that they don't come back. Um, to get the tap off. But, and the reason why he, he was explaining to me was that it was because 
it's a giant tape recorder, right? Okay, what's its power source? A battery? He told me it was nuclear. What? Oh my God. Are you serious? Yeah. Nuclear power, <laughs> a nuclear power tape recorder. Um, Jesus Christ. Like, uh, that's, that's crazy. That is, now you're making me wonder, like this is years ago. In the seventies. Yeah. The seventies. What's at the bottom of the ocean right now? I've been, I've been told that the technology has made significant strides uh, of course, it's all it's all digital now, and I'm told the device is about the size of a briefcase. Wow! I wonder if we have to actually still go recover them, like in person. Do we have to go and send a guy to pick them up and put them in the sub and put the new one on, or if it's like we just walk by it. So, by it. as you may be, you're probably beginning to tell that I went down multiple like tangents and rabbit holes uh, in the yeah, course of the story. Uh, there, there's something called upwards falling payloads which is so you'd have a, a payload let's say it's this briefcase um you could fill like a balloon with gas like poof, that's buoyant and it would shoot up through the ocean and it would actually pop out of the ocean because it's moving so quickly and, and go into the sky and it may it could potentially be recovered that way and and, and of course my cartoon-minded brain sees a sailor with a rowboat she's going <laughs> picks up the thing, puts it in this thing, and off he goes. Um, that's amazing. It, it, what's crazy is like, kind of going back to the experimental part, I can't imagine being a diver. I mean, it's okay, Rod, today we're gonna fill you up with this, uh, this mixture of gases. Like, well, is it, is it safe? We think, we think so. The rats, the rats took a while to die. So I think we, we got time to, to pull you back in. Like, as, as you can imagine, like these guys have like respiratory problems and all, all sorts of uh, health issues. Oh my God, that's crazy. Um, Jack, amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I really think that you've probably, you know, it, it, your, your exploration of the story of these four gents that, that passed away doing their job um, I think that these kinds of stories really do bring some closure for this, for these families and illuminate some of the work that we do as a country. Uh, also illuminating the fact that there are other things happening around the world outside of like the political bubble that we seem to put over the country yeah. and a lot of our issues. There, there's, hey, there's a China, there's a Russia, there's a lot going on. There's the, the stakes are big out, uh, the stakes are big out there. Um, and that means that the, the stakes are big in here as well. I mean, this next election is going to dictate how we handle the future of these cold wars. Are we going to be, are we engaging in the cold wars? Are we going to defrost this thing before it gets bad? Um, before we, before I let you go, I would love to hear the Jack Murphy forecast. Uh, once you put your, your, uh, your Kreskin, the amazing hat on. What is what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is the future for some of the the the, uh, the political environment happening out there between us and China? Because I know that's a big one. That that's going to be big, and that's going to be playing yeah. kind of big in the elections this year. Yeah, it's uh that that is the question of this century. Uh, th this century is going to be defined by two visions of the future: one from America and one from China. And one wants to be the the global hegemon. Uh, continuously. We want to have another American century. The Chinese believe that the century of what they call the century of humiliation is over. 
and now that they, they now it's their turn to be the global hegemon. That is and, so aggressive. Yeah, they're, they're they are a century of humiliation. Is that what? So, <laughs> god damn, that's how they see it. Yes, uh, and they they look back on things like the Boxer Rebellion as like something that happened yesterday. They see this as this humiliation of the Chinese people. Uh, if you ask Americans, ask them about the Boxer Rebellion, they're like, "What? <laughs> what are you talking about?" Um, and that's common in, in some parts of the world. I mean, in the Middle East, they talk about Sykes Picot like it happened yesterday. It's uh, you know, in America, we just sort of put our past behind us and move on. Um, so yeah, this is this is the question: what what is going to be the predominant form of governance? Is it going to be China's panopticon state with uh, you know social currency uh, applications that are going to monitor our entire lives for political correctness? Um, and then, but then on the other side, what is the future of American governance? Where are we heading? What what is our vision for the future? And I don't think we've articulated that very well either. So, yeah, this is the question. And right now, there is a, a, a new Cold War that is brewing between the United States and China. And all of this could be uh, precipitating the next global war. The next global conflict could be on the horizon. God damn it. I only hope that um, if there is going to be a global war, that we can finish Lovecraft Country, which is on HBO now. Before that, uh, I am on this show. I'm addicted to the show. I, I got to know what happens at the story arc. And it really does come back down to story arc. So I'm going to bring it back. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Tarantino us. I'm going to connect the dots, man. You know, will there be a story arc? Are, is there a good guy? Is there a bad guy to the thermonuclear Chinese-American-Russian war that is that always seems to be looming? Um, I'm not so sure there is. I'm not so sure there's going to be a plot or characters or uh, a zero dark 30 that's going to carry us through that. Um, I think that it's just going to, I think it's going to be like a bunch of tiny little things that just turn into one stupid big thing. Yeah, well, that's what, that's what happens. And that's the big fear is that we stumble into war without e either side really realizing it until it's too late. And um, let's just hope that we let's just hope it doesn't happen. First of all, that it doesn't happen. And that if it does, it's after the, uh, you know, series finale of Lovecraft Country. I'm going to keep talking. Have you watched this fucking show, dude? No, I haven't seen it. You have to watch Lovecraft Country, folks. Uh, just, just check it out. It's freaking amazing. That's how I'm going to end it. I'm in this show on Lovecraft Country. No, seriously, man. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And you know what, folks? If you're on the tweetings, if you're a Twitter-er, if you're on the tweets, make sure you're, you're following at Jack Murphy, RGR, because you're going to get these stories before everyone else does. Uh, I got a chance to, you know, I was, I think the minute you tweeted it, it popped up on my feed. And I was like, what? And uh, luckily, my wife is driving the car at the time, so I actually got to read it on the way home. And uh, I, I think I tweet, I think I, I, I messaged you almost immediately, like, dude, this is crazy. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, I know you're working on something right now. Super good. Super interesting. I'm going to reveal nothing, of course, because um, I can't wait to have this next conversation with you. But um, if things are going the way you think they are, that's going to be its going to be another banger. It's going to be another bombshell. Um, I'm excited. I'm stoked. Yeah, well, the, the next the story – there's a couple things working on, but really it's a, there's some stuff about uh, the 
TBI and PTSD stuff in, in uh, special operations that I'm working on that I think is going to be kind of shocking to people. Um, but I, I got some more homework to do on that before, before we, we run it. Dare we say they'll be blown away? <laughs> yes, I think they will be. I'm, I'm full of it today, folks. All right. You're all uh, hopped up on goofballs, Rod. Goofballs and caffeine and CIA mugs. Here we go. That's how we do, boys. Um, you had an anecdote. You had a story for us about the CIA gift shop. Yeah, 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 me, bro. I did. Yeah, so this is not in the article, um, but when the CIA brought the four families uh, of, uh, of uh, Meeks, McCormick, Perrick, and Stanick to CIA headquarters for the ceremony, on the way out, they saw the CIA gift shop. And they asked, like, hey, can we go in and get something? And the, the CIA people there were very hesitant because like this whole thing is supposed to be like super freaking secret. No one, no one's supposed to know they're here. And, and, but here are the families who have just learned that their loved ones died yeah. in service to their country. And it's kind of hard to say no. Open at the and shop. It, they went in there and they came out like with CIA sweatshirts and mugs and all sorts of stuff. Because I mean, that, that sounds kind of like funny on one hand, but on the other it's like they were proud uh, that their loved ones had served. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Have you ever been to their gift shop? No, I haven't. They sell the strangest branded shit. Um, not really? just Oh, dude. I was like CIA golf balls. Um, CIA. Of course, they got the keychains. I got They got like seven different types of mugs, uh, sweatshirts, hats, uh, shoes sandals they even had liquor i think it was liquor maybe it was i don't know it was like cia branded drinks like the weirdest things do they have like t-shirts of like Kay guevara with a crosshairs over his face <laughs> i'm just they, saying i'm just saying don't they should 100 i <laughs> i was so tempted to buy like some gaudy cia shit just to be like yep See that right there? That's my CIA globe or like they had some weird shit there, like crystal crystal sculptures with it reminded me of the gift shop at Carlsbad Caverns. Just like random just random shit with Carlsbad Caverns thrown on it. I don't know. I'm just glad they're they're turning a buck. Uh I will say though that my experience there was strange. Um I got to eat at the their lunch, their 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 lunch hall, which looks like a 60s airport lounge. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. It People looks, smoking cigarettes. It looks exactly like the place. you. It, it looks like it's never changed. The seats look like they're from the 60s. Um, you could see people like Mad Men style smoking in that kind of environment. But um, very, it was... It was definitely a strange experience walking <laughs> through that build, walking through some of the buildings and um, just seeing like the everyday. How was the, like, how was the food, Rod? That's what we really want to know. It was actually pretty good. They have yeah. like vendor, like they have, it, it's like a legit chow hall, like not chow hall, like an um, army chow hall, but it's like, a, you know, they have like the Starbucks and all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I did, I was warned before I showed up, cash only. Oh, really? Because they're afraid of handing over cards to uh, vendors. Yeah, I got you. Yep. I mean, if you're a CIA operative guy, you don't want to hand over like, this is my fucking real name because I want to buy yeah, a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was all cash only. There's like one ATM machine 
in that entire spot. That and uh, <clears throat> yeah, it was very, very odd. But yeah, they were all dimies. I got handed to the CIA. Um, beautiful women and handsome dudes and four dumpy army guys that had no business being there at all um we're never going we're never returning it just means <laughs> <laughs> and i'll leave you with that folks connectingvets.com go check us out we have uh the wonderful uh jack murphy there phil briggs is doing that cbs eye on veterans uh we have um abby bennett uh i keep saying i just i forget uh, libby howe uh julie uh julia ledeau uh, and we, we're, we're out there, folks. We're out there talking about the issues that matter to you. Connectingvets.com. Make sure you check us out. Back Brief. We're a podcast. We're on YouTube. Uh, I think we're currently shooting out smoke signals right now. I don't know where, where else we're published. Uh, but also Vet Story, folks. It's a story about veteran stories from veterans in their words, not mine. Go check it out. Uh, am I missing anything else, Jim? I don't think so, man. Make sure you check out the Connecting Vets uh, gift shop. We're gonna set up a gift shop now because I'm I'm gonna merch. We gotta merch, man. We gotta merch out. ConnectingVets.com mugs. ConnectingVets.com um, dining ware. Why not? Just like big CB logo on some plates. Uh, that's where we're going. I think that's what we should do. Let's merch out, folks. That's right. ConnectingVets.com. We're gonna merch out. We're gonna sell out. I will see you at the next episode. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 